Well, this past week, my wife and I decided to uh, go on a bike ride, but uh, we loaded up our bikes and took them downtown Minneapolis. We were going to ride around the lakes down there, and I grew up down in that part of the Twin Cities, so I sort of knew the area, but as we made our way down there, I quickly discovered that there was all kinds of crazy road construction going on, and uh, all the normal roads that I used to take were all blocked off, and there are all these road signs leading me down, you know, weird back alleyways, and, and I was just totally confused, uh, and it took us, like, you know, crazy time to finally get to our destination, and, and then I come home and discover that 35 here right outside of Forest Lake is totally like a mess. And, uh, you know, I hadn't been out that way like in a week or so. And they've got, you know, this split thing. And I ended up in Wyoming. And like the signs were just like not clear. I couldn't figure out where I was supposed to go. And so that got me thinking this week. I said, you know, I wonder if there are like other people who run into these confusing road signs. And and so sure enough, I did a little search online and uh, came up with a, a whole bunch of crazy road signs, confusing road signs that you can find out there. Uh, For example, uh, one way, uh, I'm not quite sure how that would work if you came up to that one. Or uh, how about this one? You know, it's uh, that if that doesn't cause a few fender benders, I don't know what will. How many of you have ever been told just turn left at Montreal, right? Or uh, maybe this next one, school speed zone. You ever had trouble with the school speed zone? Look at this one. They got like 10 different options there. I mean, craziness. And then uh, right lane must right left, all right? If if you can figure that one out, you're doing a lot better than me. Through traffic, merge left. Turn right, go straight, merge left. Or uh, this one here will uh, throw you for a few loops, I think. How about the no parking zone? If that one doesn't confuse you, you know what I mean? Or who put this one up? Do not enter, entrance only. All right, what, what are they thinking? Now, now, if I pulled up to the intersection and came upon this, I, I would probably just get out of my car and walk away at that point. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't even know how you would begin to make sense of this. But the, the reason I share these confusing signs with us here this morning is because we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture today where Jesus speaks about the end times. And, and the passage that we're in, Luke chapter 21 Uh, Jesus shares a whole bunch of signs about the various times that we live in, the times of his disciples, but also the end times. And and to be honest with you, when we come to passages like these, I don't think there's a person in here who wouldn't say, like, we kind of just walk away sort of scratching our head, wondering, like, how am I supposed to make sense out of all this stuff? And it feels like we're coming up to an intersection with all these kind of crazy signs. And we know God put this stuff in the Bible for a reason, right? I mean, it's biblical truth. It's divinely inspired by God. So there's material there that we need to know that we can learn from. And we're going to try to do that today. That's my goal, to help us to make sense of this passage and to pull out some some truths that can help us even in our lives here and now as we look forward to the future. But, uh, but really, these passages can be very confusing for us. So, so I'm going to try to keep it simple, try to leave us walking away with a, with a firm understanding of what Jesus is communicating here. And then I want to share some practical points of application of how we can apply these various signs uh, to our own lives today. How can, what can we take away from this passage? Now, I know for a fact that there are people in this room who like are big time Bible prophecy buffs. And I mean, you've been studying this stuff your whole lives. You've probably read countless books. And, and I'm just going to say right up front, I know for a fact, I'm going to disappoint some of you today. 
all right? Because some of you are going to walk away saying, well, Jason, you didn't deal with this, and you didn't deal with that, and you didn't cover this. There's no way we can cover everything related to the future and Bible prophecy in the end times in a 30-minute sermon, okay? It's just impossible. So if I disappoint you because I didn't talk about your favorite aspect, all right, I apologize in advance. Just not going to happen. What I am going to do is I'm going to try to simply explain to us Luke chapter 21, so that we can walk away with a basic understanding of what Jesus is communicating and then apply some simple truths to our own life today, uh, looking at this passage related to the end times. All right, what we're going to do today is we're going to see in this passage how Jesus reveals to us basically three key sections. He's going to reveal for us the signs of the time that the disciples were living in. He's going to reveal to us the signs of the times that all believers hold in common throughout all of Christian history, beginning in the early church through today. And then he's going to deal with the signs of the end times, those prophecies related specifically to the events preceding his second coming. So we're going to see three key chunks. I'm going to break it down and explain that to us as we go through the passage. But first, I'd like to read it for us. So if you follow along on the screen behind me, or if you have your Bibles, this is is one of the sermons where I would really encourage you to open up your Bible if you have it because we're going to be referring back to various sections as we go along. Some of Jesus' disciples remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. He then said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and all of men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. You guys probably get all this. Let's just go home, all right? That's it. I'm just kidding. This is a difficult passage, though. And it contains a, a lot of interesting and sometimes even controversial uh, material related to the signs that Jesus has given us here. And what I want to do for us today is, is, is not provide an exhaustive study on end times prophecy, but I, what I really want to do is focus particularly on this passage and, and how we can break it down into understandable sections and, and then apply it to our lives today. So, so the first key thing to understand here this morning, as I mentioned earlier, is what Jesus does in this passage is he really speaks to three different periods and three different sets of signs that we can watch for to understand those various periods. And, and to begin with, Jesus reveals, number one, the signs of the time. In other words, Jesus is speaking here of the signs related to the very time period that his followers were living in. So in verses 20 through 24, what Jesus is talking about are related to the fall of Jerusalem when the Roman Empire came and completely destroyed Israel and Jerusalem in 70 AD, roughly 40 years after Jesus delivered this message. In other words, many of his followers would have lived to have seen these events take place. In verses 20 through 24, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. You see, God had prophesied to the Jewish people the destruction of Jerusalem. Throughout the Old Testament, God had repeatedly warned the Israelites about the serious consequences of their rebellion. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the Israelites repeatedly rebelling against God, refusing to submit to his will for their lives. And now here, God has sent the promised Messiah. He has sent his very son into their presence. And now in the ultimate act of rejection, the Israelites would refuse even Jesus himself, the son of God. And so 40 years later, after Jesus prophesied this event, the destruction of Jerusalem came. And as the Bible describes, armies surrounded Jerusalem. And it was a horrible time, a terrible time. The Roman historian Josephus tells us that over a million Jews were killed. Over 100,000 were taken captive by the Romans, sold into slavery throughout the Roman Empire. The, the siege of Jerusalem was so brutal that the Jews even resorted to cannibalism in order to survive. It was a devastating time. And as Jesus said, the grand temple that was the center of the Israelite faith Faith was completely demolished. Not a stone was left unturned. 
In fact, today, if you go to Jerusalem, all that remains of the original temple was the foundation wall, the western wall where the Jews pray today. The whole temple was torn down. It was the most cataclysmic event in the history of the Jewish faith. And again, Jesus prophesied this 40 years in advance of its happening, warning the people of Israel one last time about the oncoming destruction. Why did all this happen? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 22 that was in fulfillment of all that had been written. Again, those Old Testament prophets who had warned the Israelites of the consequences of their rebellion, and yet they continued to reject the Messiah. And we've seen Jesus warn his people time and time again about this. Remember just a couple of weeks ago, Luke chapter 20, we read the parable of the vineyard and how the vineyard owner came and he sent servants and they were repeatedly abused and rejected. Finally, the vineyard owner sent his son. His son was then killed. And then the vineyard owner came and he passed judgment on those tenants. And then he gave the vineyard to others. You see, Jesus repeatedly warned the people of his day and age about the oncoming judgment because God is a God of grace and he is a God of love. He is a patient God and he wants none to perish. But the reality is God is also a just God and he's a holy God and he will not let sin go unpunished forever. And so in 70 AD, we see the reality of God's righteousness and how serious he is about sin. You know, the reality is today we tend to, to minimize this aspect of God's character. We don't, we don't like to talk about the reality of judgment. We don't like to talk about the reality of a righteous God, a holy God who is going to judge us for our sins. That's not a popular message in our day and age, but it's a true message, friends. Because God is a gracious and loving God, but he's also a holy and righteous God. And so he cannot allow sin to go unpunished forever. And the judgment of Jerusalem that Jesus prophesied here 40 years earlier is really a blunt reminder that God will not be mocked and he will not tolerate sin forever. And so when we read stories like these and we see the promises uh, that Jesus made about the oncoming judgment and we see the fulfillment of that judgment happen in 70 AD, when we see these realities, this should lead us to question our own lives. And ask the Lord, God, what, what in my life is present that is unpleasing to you? Where in my life have I strayed or rebelled against you? Because again, God loves you and he's a gracious God and he's a patient God, but he will not allow sin to go unpunished forever. He will judge us in our sin. And so this should cause us to reflect and when necessary to repent and to seek God's forgiveness, and to turn and get our lives right with the Lord, and again, walk faithfully in his ways, so that we don't have to face this same kind of judgment. But Jesus here warns his followers about the signs of the time that they were living in. These things were soon to take place. Within 40 years, his disciples would see the destruction of Jerusalem, something that they could hardly fathom, and yet it came to pass. We also see in our passage this morning that Jesus reveals the signs of the times. The signs of the times. Now, now this section found in verses 12 through 19 refers to all Christians in all times. These are warnings that Jesus gave to his followers to know what they could expect for following Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. 
And these signs apply to all believers, starting in the first century, the early church, the apostles. They were the first one to experience the signs Jesus talks about. But all the way up into our present day and age, we still today experience these very signs that Jesus told us to be on watch for. Starting in verse 12, Jesus says, But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Jesus gives us these warning signs to know what it is, what is the cost of following him? What is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? You see, if you're going to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus means to pick up your cross and to count the cost. And so these warning signs here were given to his followers in the early church, but they're as relevant and applicable for our times today as they were back then. You see, you need to understand, friends, that to follow Jesus isn't a popular thing in our world. It never has been. To claim that there's only one way to God has never been a popular or praiseworthy message in the eyes of the unbelieving world. To say that some people are lost and destined for an eternity separated from God in a place called hell is not going to win you any popularity contests. And from the very beginning of the church, God's people have been persecuted for proclaiming the name of Jesus as the one and only Savior and Messiah. It started in the book of Acts, and we read the accounts of the persecutions of the early church, but all the way up through our present day, Christians still face persecution for their faith. Jesus says we need to count the cost. You know, friends, these eight verses alone completely do away with the false theology that so many in our culture have embraced today, known as prosperity theology. We have a lot of preachers out in our culture today that proclaim that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And if you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, you either have some sin in your life or you just don't have enough faith. Friends, you need to know this morning, that's theological garbage. It's not biblical. It has no place in God's church. But yet a lot of people proclaim this message. And it's contradictory to the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to bear the cross. If you're going to follow me, all men are going to hate you because of my name. Even your parents and your brothers and your sisters, you will be rejected by all people. That's the warning Jesus wants us to see here. He wants us to know very clearly the cost that we face in following him. And we see this cost played out even up to our present day. We just had a missions team come back from China recently, working with a people group that our church has been working with for a number of years. And some of these people who came back from this trip told us that our brothers and sisters today in China, when they gather for their worship services, they have to have people on the street corners with cell phones ready to text or call warnings back to the worshipers if they see the police coming down the street. Can you imagine that, having to have guards stationed on Sunday morning up on Olinda Trail to warn us that the police are coming, you need to disperse quickly? That's what our brothers and sisters in China live with today. I got an email recently from the Pino family who are Lakes Free missionaries in Panama. 
And they were asking for prayer because the local governor of the province where they're ministering in is refusing to grant them permission, certification to do the medical missions clinics that they want to hold to help care for the needs of the Panamanian people in the region where they, where they live and serve. But this governor, he's not a Christian, and he's against Christians, and so he's refusing to grant them the permits that they need in order to help thousands of people in that area, all because he hates the name of Jesus. You've got to believe, friends, that this kind of persecution is a reality in our world today. We may not face it the same way that our brothers and sisters around the world face it, but number one, that should lead us to pray all the more for them. And number two, it should give us courage and encouragement to be ready to face that same kind of persecution if it should come our way as well. In fact, we've seen growing persecution already, even here in the United States, for people who dare to proclaim Jesus as Lord. You may have heard the case just this past year, just this past February, Baronel Stutzman. She's a florist in the state of Washington. She's a Christian. And she had refused to provide flowers for a same-sex couple for their marriage ceremony. She had no problem serving them as clients in general, but she just could not give her artistic talents towards the promotion of a same-sex marriage. She felt that it violated her Christian conscience, her biblical values. And so the state of Oregon, along with this gay couple, sued her, and she faces the threat of losing her entire business, this elderly woman, not only her entire business, but her entire home, everything she owns in order to pay the legal fees for this, for this challenge. Her court case went all the way to the Washington State Supreme Court who ruled against her in favor of this same-sex couple. And she's now appealing to the United States Supreme Court. Again, all because she wants to honor her biblical convictions in favor of God's design for marriage. No hatred, no animosity to these folks. Just wants to honor the Lord. And you, you see these examples of persecution all around our world today. Some places have it far worse than we do here in America. But Jesus tells us we need to be ready to count the cost to follow him. But at the same time, Jesus tells us that we need not fear because he's going to be with us. Jesus says, even when they bring you before the courts, when they bring you before kings and governors, do not fear what you'll say, for I will give you the words. Some of you were with us in February at our apologetics conference, and one of the neatest parts of our apologetics conference this year was getting to hear from Kevin and Julia Garrett two Christian missionaries who had served in China for uh, two decades. Two years ago, they were arrested and put in secret Chinese prisons, kept in solitary confinement. They were accused of being spies. And every day for a year, the Chinese interrogators would interrogate them, trying to get them to confess to being spies. And if you remember Julia's testimony, Julia shared, it was so remarkable. She said, when, when the interrogators would come into my room every day, she said, Jesus just gave me the words to say. And they would try to get me to get caught up in a lie or a contradiction. But she said it was so interesting because the guards would end up contradicting themselves. They couldn't even keep their story straight trying to get me to, you know, divulge that I was a spy, which she wasn't. And she says it was because Jesus was with me and he gave me the words. See, that's what Jesus' promises. He says even though we may face persecution, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Jesus says, not a hair on your head will perish. Even if you should die in the cause of Christ, Jesus promises you will live eternally. And so we need not fear the reality of the signs of the times, that we may face persecution, but God will be with us.
The third thing Jesus reveals in our passage this morning is the signs of the end times. And here Jesus does this in two different sections, verses 7 through 11 and verses 25 through 32. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are about to take place? Jesus says in verse 8, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. In verse 25, Jesus goes on, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Here, Jesus reveals to us the signs of the events that will precede his second coming. And Jesus highlights for us in this section four realities that we should be watching for. Number one, Jesus says that there will be false Christs and false prophets who will come. They will come in his name and they will proclaim that the end is near. And in verse 8, Jesus says, do not follow them. And we've seen the examples of these false Christs and false prophets throughout history. Even in recent history, in the last hundred years, a, a literal explosion of false Christs, false prophets, false religions that have proclaimed the coming of Jesus Christ. Melinda, in her faith story earlier, talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses. For a decade prior to 1914, the Jehovah's Witnesses were telling people that Jesus Christ was going to return in 1914. 1914 came and went, and Jesus Christ didn't return. Except to, the, to this very day, the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that Jesus Christ did return. He returned as a spirit who now rules over earth from Brooklyn, New York, at the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society headquarters. They call it the theocratic kingdom of God. They believe that Jesus Christ did return in 1914. Probably the most famous example of these false Christs that, came, that come proclaiming the end is near took place in November of 1978. Many of you know the story of Jim Jones in Jonestown, Guyana. 913 Americans commit mass suicide following a man that they believed was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jim Jones, who began as a legitimate Christian minister, ultimately went on a head trip and an ego trip and started claiming to be the prophet of God on earth, the voice of God on earth, ultimately claiming to himself being the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jim Jones so convinced his people that he was the second coming of Jesus Christ that when he ordered them to take grape Kool-Aid laced with cyanide poisoning and give it to their babies and kids and then drink it themselves, these people followed him without question. Because who are you to question the second coming of Jesus Christ? Very interesting, the commander of the U.S. Air Force who went down to Jonestown to clean out the camp and bring the bodies back home, he held a press conference when he returned to America. And it was interesting, he said, the thing that interested me most about Jonestown, he said, when we cleaned out the camp, we didn't find a single Bible in all of Jonestown. Jim Jones had so thoroughly replaced the truth and authority of God's word with his own man-made teachings and beliefs that his people were willing to follow them to their graves. 
You know, friends, if they had just read their Bibles, they wouldn't have been so easily led astray. In verse 8, Jesus tells his followers, these false Christs and false prophets are going to come. But in verse 8, Jesus says, do not follow them. Why not? Look at verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus tells us nobody is going to miss the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes again, he is coming on the clouds in great power and glory, and the whole world is going to see it. There's going to be no mistaking the second coming of Jesus Christ. So next time you hear one of these false prophets proclaiming that Jesus has come, all you need to do is point to verse 27. No, Jesus hasn't come. Jesus isn't in Brooklyn, New York, ruling as an invisible spirit. When Jesus comes, nobody is going to miss it. He's coming on the clouds with power and glory. The second sign Jesus gives us here in this passage, verses 9 and 10, he says there's going to be wars and revolutions. Now, in one sense, friends, wars have always been a part of the human experience. I read a passage this week from a book called Lessons on History by Will Durant. And in his book, Will Durant says, war is one of the constants of history and is not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. So the reality is war has always been with us. So, so what's Jesus talking about? There's going to be wars and revolutions. In Matthew, he says wars and rumors of war. Well, I, what I think Jesus is talking about, however, is, is a marked increase in global conflict. We're, we're not just going to be talking about, you know, the, the random skirmish over here and the war over there. We're going to see a worldwide phenomenon of the increase in turmoil of nation against nation, wars and revolutions. Thirdly, Jesus tells us there'll be an increase in natural disasters. In verse 11 and verse 25, Jesus tells us that there will be famine, pestilence, earthquakes, and and all these natural disasters will increase. Uh, Are we living in the end times today? I mean, I watch the news. I see volcanoes blowing up in Hawaii. I see famine around the world. I see pestilence. I see earthquakes. Friends, we very very well may be experiencing the signs of Jesus' second coming. I don't know that for sure but he tells us to be on watch. These are part of the signs. And fourthly, Jesus tells us there will be wonders in the heavens. There will be signs, verse 11 and 25, 26, say there will be signs in the sun, moon, and the stars. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. Men on earth will quake in fear over the signs that they see in the heavens. Now, we've seen incredible heavenly signs. A couple of years ago, we saw the blood moons. We saw the blue moons and the new moons and, you know, the comets, and there's all kinds of signs in the heavens. Are these related to the end times? I don't know that for sure. Okay? But Jesus says there's going to be a marked increase in these wondrous signs in heaven. Personally, I think there may be a good likelihood that Jesus is talking about something supernatural that's going to take place. Not comets, not constellations, not blood moons, which have been around from the beginning of time. But maybe what Jesus is talking about are signs in the heavens that are going to be of a supernatural origin, like the star of Bethlehem that led the Magi and moved through the night sky. And maybe God in his supernatural power is going to do something wondrous, something so phenomenal in the heavens that, as Jesus says, men are going to fall in terror when they see it. But regardless 
Jesus gives us these signs. And what are we to do with all these signs? Verse 29 through 31 gives us the key to interpreting these signs. Jesus told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Friends, here in Minnesota, we love springtime because when we see the blossoms on the trees and the leaves start coming out, we know that summer is near. And so Jesus didn't give his followers these signs to lead us into, into you know, terror or fear or consternation about the end. Jesus says when these signs come, like the, apple, like the crab apple blossoms on the tree in my front yard, when those blossoms come out, we know that it means summer is right around the corner. We're going to be hitting the lakes. We're going to be out on the motorcycle, out on the golf course. Summer's here. It's a time of joy and celebration. It's not a time of fear. And yet so many people read about the end times and the signs of the end times and, and they quake with fear. They, they get so concerned. Well, man, uh, these are fearful things. These aren't fearful things. These are signs to rejoice over. These are signs to be excited over. Like we get excited when we see the flowers come out at springtime. The signs of the times are announcing to us that the king is coming. And so hope, friends, rejoice. The Lord is returning. Remember our sermon from last Sunday. Our experience in heaven is going to be incomparably greater than anything we know here on earth. Friends, you won't miss this earth one bit. Even the greatest joys of this life will pale in comparison to what we'll experience in heaven one day. And so when we see these signs around us, instead of being fearful and concerned, our prayer should be Maranatha. Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Man, I can't wait for Jesus to return. I pray for Jesus to return every day. And I don't pray that because I, I don't like my life today. Man, I got a great wife. I love my family. I love my job. I love you guys. But you know what? Everything good in my life is going to be magnified a thousandfold when the Lord returns and brings us into glory. And so come, Lord Jesus. Come today if you want. Come tomorrow, man, please. Come. The signs of the times are not something to be intimidated by. There's something to rejoice over. I want to leave you with four points of application this morning. I'm going to go through these very quickly. Number one, as Christians, what do we do to take away from this passage? Number one, I encourage you, avoid end-time sensationalism. Avoid end-time sensationalism. In verse 8, Jesus tells us specifically, many will come in my name, claiming the time is near. And what is his caution about this? He says, do not follow them. Do not follow them. Okay? He doesn't say if they hit the New York Times bestseller list to follow them or if they got a church of 5,000 people to follow them. He says, no, do not follow them. Okay? Don't get caught up in end-time sensationalism. In fact, in other places, uh, in Matthew, for example, Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. Only our Father in heaven. In Acts 1, verse 7, Jesus tells his disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. All right? So, so understand this, friends. Setting dates is futile, and obsessive prognostication is a distraction from our ultimate goal, which is to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. 
Okay. Now here's the deal. Jesus gave us signs to watch for. And so there's nothing wrong with studying the signs of the times. We teach classes here on the end times at Lakes Free. There's nothing wrong with that, but we have to have a healthy balance. And we have to avoid end time sensationalism where we get so caught up in this stuff that we forget what our true mission is, which is to take the gospel to lost people. See, that's what it's ultimately about. Right? You can bury your head in prophecy books and forget that there's a lost world around us. And the whole reason Jesus gave us these prophecies was to motivate us to get out of our church and go and reach lost people before he returns. Because when he does return, that day is going to enclose on them like a trap. All right? So, so let's stick to our mission and let's avoid end times sensationalism. Secondly, application number two, we need to trust in God's sovereignty. Friends, remember this. God is outside of time and space. He's not confined to our three-dimensional finite universe. He sees all of history from his divine eternal vantage point. And and this is why Jesus could prophesy in 30 AD about events that would unfold in 70 AD. And those prophecies came true. And this is why we can trust when Jesus talks about events that are going to happen preceding his second coming, that just like his prophecies about Jerusalem came true, his prophecies about the end times will come true. We can trust that. Jesus himself tells us in verse 33 that his words will never pass away. What does that mean? God's word is immutable. It's timeless. It's unchanging. And so when he speaks about things that are going to happen in the future, we can be confident that those things will happen exactly as he says, because God in his eternal wisdom and from his eternal vantage point sees all of history in a single moment. He sees today, he sees 10 minutes from this moment, and he sees 10,000 years from this moment. He knows it all. And so we can trust him. We don't have any reason to doubt his promises about the future. Now, here's what I want you to take away on this point. We may not know the future, but we can know and trust the one who does. Okay? And so this is why we can embrace those promises in Scripture, like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in everything you do, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Right? God knows all about your circumstances today. He knows what you're going to face two years from today. Right? He, he knows it all. And so if he knows it all, who better to put your hope and trust in than the one who holds the future in the palm of his hands? You'll never go wrong trusting in God's sovereignty. Application number three, live in light of eternity. Live in light of eternity. In verse 34 of our passage today, Jesus says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap. Jesus tells us to be careful here. Why? Because it's possible to lose sight of the promise of his second coming. And friends, when we lose sight of the blessed hope of his return, that's when we're prone to despair. When we forget that our Lord is sovereign and he is reigning over the world today and he is coming again one day for his people a glorious return, the blessed hope of believers. When we forget those things, it gets easy to to fall into the trap of despair. And despair leads to dissipation, the squandering of your life. Don't waste your life. 
Despair leads to drunkenness. I'm, I'm going to bury myself and, and mask, my, mask my pain. Despair leads to anxiety, worrying about the things in your life that you can't control. And Jesus says, don't despair. Don't fall into dissipation and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. But again, trust in the one who holds the future in the palm of his hands. Live for something of eternal value. Remember that Jesus is coming again and invest your life in things of eternal purposes. Live with eternity's values in view. Whatever your job, whatever your occupation, whatever your role in your family, we all serve as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And when we have that greater purpose and meaning, that gives meaning to everything we do, right? You're not a food truck vendor. You're an ambassador for Jesus, right? And, and Jim, you're not just a lawnmower. You're on mission for Jesus, right? And Eric, you're just not a contractor. You're an ambassador for Jesus in your company, among your coworkers, right? Everything we do, Jesus gives greater meaning to when we recognize our calling to live in light of eternity. Application number four, be sure of your standing before God. Friends, this one is so important. Be sure of your standing before God. Look at in a room this size, I know there's probably somebody here this morning who's just here and you're, you're curious, you're searching, you're looking for truth. You're, you know, maybe you're just here as a critic or a skeptic. Here's the deal. Jesus tells us in verse 36, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. See, when Jesus returns, will you be able to stand before him? Or is that day going to close in on you unexpectedly like a trap? Do you have confidence that you'll be standing with the Son when he returns? How can you be sure? Well, Jesus gives us the key in John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Some of you might know that my wife three years ago went through a pretty serious battle with cancer, stage three breast cancer. You know, when the oncologist diagnosed my wife with cancer three years ago, was it the diagnosis that gave my wife cancer? No, she had cancer already. And if my wife would have refused the oncologist's treatment for her cancer, would it have been the oncologist's fault if the cancer then continued to spread? Of course not. The oncologist provided Kim with the opportunity to remedy her condition. And if Kim had refused the prescribed treatment, she would have had no one to blame but herself for the consequences. And in the same way, friends, we are all infected with a spiritual disease our sin, which separates us from God. And Jesus has given us the diagnosis and he has prescribed the remedy for our condition. And so friends, if you fail to submit to Jesus as your savior and your Lord, you have no one to blame but yourself when you stand before God in judgment. But you see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has in his great love for you, he's provided a way to be saved. And if you will submit your life to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, if you'll confess your sins to him and invite him into your heart to be 
your Savior, your Lord, your Messiah, God will do a wondrous work in your life. He'll cleanse you of all your sins, and he'll set you on the path that leads to life and life to the full. And it's available to you, but the choice is yours. Will you choose to stand before Jesus? Are you ready to stand before Jesus? As I close this morning, friends, understand this. Next to the promise of our salvation, the promise of our Lord's return is the greatest hope he's given us. I pray you're ready. And I pray you'll live each day like it's the last. And I pray that all of us together might proclaim Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage this morning. And I know, Lord, it's a, it's a difficult passage, and we just scratch the surface of all these matters, Lord. But I pray, God, that at the end of the day, we would all walk out of here confident and assured and hopeful in the knowledge that you are coming again for your people. And Lord, like we see the trees blossoming all around us right now, and we know summer's right around the corner, I pray, God, that as we see the signs of the times unfold around us, that it wouldn't cause us to despair or lead us into fear or confusion, but that we would look at those signs and say, there's another blossom that shows us that the Lord is coming. Summer is near, and we can take hope, we can take joy, we can have confidence the King is coming to make all things right. Give us that hope, Lord. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. I leave you with these words from Jude, verses 1 and 2. To those who have been called, who are loved by God, the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen.